Hey, nerds. I recently read D.C. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin's memorandum opinion regarding Donald Trump's motion to dismiss the January 6th case. We're still waiting for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to weigh in on Trump's appeal to that ruling. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed to expedite that appeal, the oral arguments for which we heard earlier in the month, but this is not always the case. While we can expect to hear a decision on this January 6th case appeal fairly soon, sometimes it takes much longer to get a ruling from a circuit court. For example, when the D.C. Circuit Court decided the appeal in Blassingame v. Trump regarding presidential immunity for unofficial acts in civil suits, it was argued in December of 2022 and was not decided until December of 2023, so a whole year. I was browsing through that particular opinion earlier this week, and I realized that it didn't seem to get as much attention as a case of such large importance normally would get. Probably because any case about civil liability seems less important when there are four criminal cases against the same defendant getting most of the coverage, so I've decided to begin reading that circuit court opinion for you today. It follows perfectly behind last week's reading of Nixon v. Fitzgerald from 1982, and it provides a more thorough background on presidential immunity during these very historic times for political scientists like myself. As soon as the circuit court issues an opinion on Judge Chutkin's ruling in the January 6th case, I will begin reading it for you. However, If the Supreme Court issues any new opinions on cases argued so far this term, it will take priority over any circuit court rulings issued at or around the same time. And now I give you the unanimous opinion of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Blassingame v. Trump, decided December 1, 2023. Enjoy. Chief Judge Srinivasan delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Since the Supreme Court's decision in Nixon v. Fitzgerald, 1982, presidents have carried out their official responsibilities free from any exposure to civil damages liability. Nixon established a president's absolute immunity from civil damages claims predicated on his official acts. The object of a president's official act immunity is to assure that he can fearlessly and impartially discharge the singularly weighty duties of the office. The president, though, does not spend every minute of every day exercising official responsibilities. And when he acts outside the functions of his office, he does not continue to enjoy immunity from damages liability just because he happens to be the president. Rather, as the Supreme Court made clear in Clinton v. Jones, 1997, a president's official act immunity by nature does not extend to his unofficial actions. When he acts in an unofficial private capacity, he is subject to civil suits like any private citizen. 
This appeal calls for us to apply those key decisional precedents on presidential immunity to a decidedly unprecedented event involving the presidency. The riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, just as Congress convened to tabulate the Electoral College vote and declare the person elected president. The plaintiffs in the cases before us are Capitol Police officers and members of Congress who were at the Capitol that day. They seek civil damages for harms they allege they suffered arising from the riot. Although they sue various persons, the sole defendant named in all of the cases consolidated before us is former President Donald J. Trump. The plaintiffs contend that during President Trump's final months in office, he conspired with political allies and supporters to obtain a second term despite his defeat in the 2020 election. He allegedly advanced that cause before January 6 by repeatedly making false claims that the election might be, and then had been, stolen, filing meritless lawsuits challenging the election results, and pressuring state and local officials to reverse the election outcomes in their jurisdictions. Those efforts allegedly culminated in the 75-minute speech President Trump delivered at the rally on January 6th. According to the plaintiffs, President Trump's actions, including ultimately his speech on January 6th, sparked the ensuing riot at the Capitol. President Trump moved in the district court to dismiss the claims against him, including on grounds of a president's official act immunity from damages liability. The district court largely rejected his claim of immunity, and President Trump now appeals. The sole issue before us is whether President Trump has demonstrated an entitlement to official act immunity for his actions leading up to and on January 6th, as alleged in the complaints. We answer no. At least at this stage of the proceedings, when a first-term president opts to seek a second term, his campaign to win re-election is not an official presidential act. The office of the presidency as an institution is agnostic about who will occupy it next. And campaigning to gain that office is not an official act of the office. So, when a sitting president running for a second term attends a private fundraiser for his re-election effort, hires or fires his campaign staff, cuts a political ad supporting his candidacy, or speaks at a campaign rally funded and organized by his re-election campaign committee, he is not carrying out the official duties of the presidency. He is acting as an office seeker, not office holder, no less than are the persons running against him when they take precisely the same actions in their competing campaigns to attain precisely the same office. President Trump himself recognized that he engaged in his campaign to win re-election, including his post-election efforts to alter the declared results in his favor, in his personal capacity as presidential candidate, 
not in his official capacity as sitting president. That is evident in his effort to intervene in the Supreme Court's consideration of a post-election lawsuit challenging the administration of the election in various battleground states. He expressly filed his motion in the Supreme Court in his personal capacity as candidate for re-election to the office of president, rather than in his official capacity as sitting president. And he grounded his claimed right to intervene in the case in his unique and substantial personal interests as candidate for re-election to the office of president, rather than in any official interest in exercising the office's duties. In arguing that he is entitled to official act immunity in the cases before us, President Trump does not dispute that he engaged in his alleged actions up to and on January 6th in his capacity as a candidate. But he thinks that does not matter. Rather, in his view, a president's speech on matters of public concern is invariably an official function, and he was engaged in that function when he spoke at the January 6th rally and in the lead-up to that day. We cannot accept that rationale. While presidents are often exercising official responsibilities when they speak on matters of public concern, that is not always the case. When a sitting president running for re-election speaks in a campaign ad or in accepting his political party's nomination at the party convention, he typically speaks on matters of public concern. Yet he does so in an unofficial private capacity as office seeker, not an official capacity as office holder. And actions taken in an unofficial capacity cannot qualify for an official act immunity. While we thus reject President Trump's argument for official act immunity at this stage, that result is necessarily tied to the need to assume the truth of the plaintiff's factual allegations at this point in the proceedings. President Trump has not had the chance to counter those allegations with facts of his own. When these cases move forward in the district court, he must be afforded the opportunity to develop his own facts on the immunity question if he desires to show that he took the actions alleged in the complaints in his official capacity as president rather than in his unofficial capacity as a candidate. At the appropriate time, he can move for summary judgment on his claim of official act immunity. Because our decision is not necessarily even the final word on the issue of presidential immunity, we of course express no view on the ultimate merits of the claims against President Trump. Nor do we have any occasion to address his other defenses, including his claim that his alleged actions fall within the protections of the First Amendment because they did not amount to incitement of imminent lawless action. He did not seek appellate review at this time of the district court's denial of his First Amendment defense, but he could bring that issue before us in the future. We also do not opine on whether executive or other privileges might shield certain evidence from discovery or use as the litigation proceeds.
nor does our decision on a president's official act immunity from damages liability in a civil suit treat with whether or when a president might be immune from criminal prosecution. Instead, we hold only that, taking the allegations in the plaintiff's complaints as true as we must at this point in the proceedings, President Trump has not demonstrated an entitlement to dismissal of the claims against him based on a president's official act immunity. In the proceedings ahead in the district court, President Trump will have the opportunity to show that his alleged actions in the run-up to and on January 6th were taken in his official capacity as president rather than in his unofficial capacity as presidential candidate. Part 1. Section A. Because this appeal comes to us on the denial in relevant part of motions to dismiss, we assume the truth of the factual allegations in the complaints. We also draw from the complaints in all three cases consolidated before us. And because the sole question we consider is whether President Trump has shown that he should have been granted a dismissal of the claims against him on grounds of presidential immunity, we focus on the allegations about his actions rather than those of the other defendants, and in particular on the allegations pertaining to his entitlement to official act immunity. 1. President Trump served in office from January 20, 2017 until January 20, 2021. In 2020, he ran for re-election on the Republican ticket alongside then-Vice President Michael R. Pence. They faced the Democratic nominee, then-former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr., and his running mate, then-Senator Kamala D. Harris. According to the complaints, President Trump began sowing doubt about the integrity of the 2020 presidential election well before the election, often via the platform then called Twitter, and continued to do so through Election Day. He posted the numerous tweets recounted in the complaints and related here via his personal account at Real Donald Trump, to his 89 million followers. In June 2020, for example, President Trump tweeted, Millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times. That August, he stated that the only way we're going to lose this election is if this election is rigged. And in October, he posted a tweet accusing Democrats of trying to steal this election. The plaintiffs allege that President Trump communicated the same message in the first presidential debate in late September 2020, where he stated, This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. It's a rigged election. They, Democrats, cheat and they found ballots in a waste paper basket three days ago, and they all had the name Trump on them. The plaintiffs also contend that, in the same debate, President Trump declined to conclusively reject the idea 
that the election results might warrant a potentially violent response. When invited by a moderator to urge his supporters to stay calm following the election and not to engage in any civil unrest, he responded, If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board, but if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. On election day, November 3rd, early returns showed President Trump leading in key states. But as states began processing more mail-in ballots, his lead started to dwindle. Soon after midnight on November 4th, as returns continued to come in, President Trump tweeted, We are up big, but they are trying to steal the election. We will never let them do it. Votes cannot be cast after the polls are closed. The following day, President Trump reiterated his claims of a stolen election, tweeting, Stop the count and stop the fraud. He echoed that claim late that night, tweeting, I easily win the presidency of the United States with legal votes cast. The observers were not allowed in any way, shape, or form to do their job and therefore votes accepted during this period must be determined to be illegal votes. U.S. Supreme Court should decide. 2. A. On November 7th, all major U.S. news outlets projected that then-former Vice President Biden and then-Senator Harris would win the election. President Trump did not concede. Rather, over the ensuing weeks, he continued to assert that the election had been stolen. For example, he tweeted that Democrats had so blatantly cheated in their attempt to steal the election, which we won overwhelmingly. President Trump also attempted to alter the declared election results by various means. According to the plaintiffs, those efforts sought to further the sense among his supporters that the election had been stolen. For instance, President Trump and his allies filed 62 lawsuits in state and federal courts around the country that sought, on various theories, to overturn the results in key states. Virtually all of the lawsuits were rejected outright. In addition, President Trump tried to persuade state and local officials in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia to use their offices to change the declared results in their jurisdictions. B. When members of the Electoral College met in their respective states on December 14th, they collectively cast 306 electoral votes for then-President-elect Biden and 232 electoral votes for President Trump. According to the complaints, President Trump then began focusing his efforts on Congress, which was set to meet on January 6th to officially tabulate electoral votes and declare the next president pursuant to the Electoral Count Act. On December 19th, President Trump posted a tweet referencing a report alleging election fraud more than sufficient to sweep victory to Trump. 
President Trump stated that it was statistically impossible for him to have lost the 2020 election. He added that there would be a big protest in D.C. on January 6th, and he called on his supporters to attend. Be there. Will be wild. A week later, President Trump again promoted the planned protest via Twitter, this time asserting that the Department of Justice and the FBI had done nothing about the 2020 presidential election voter fraud, the biggest scam in our nation's history, despite overwhelming evidence. They should be ashamed. History will remember. Never give up. See everyone in D.C. on January 6th. Meanwhile, plans for the January 6th event, which became known as the Save America Rally, took shape. According to the complaints, the rally's organizers, including the group Women for America First, at least one Trump campaign staff member, and a Trump campaign fundraiser, secured a permit to hold the event at the Ellipse, a large lawn just south of the White House. The permit listed the Trump campaign's director of finance operations as the rally's VIP lead and named Event Strategies, Inc., which received payments from President Trump's campaign roughly three weeks before January 6th as the event's production vendor. More generally, the complaints allege that the Save America rally was privately funded and that the Trump campaign or persons associated with it were involved in organizing and funding it, although there is some variation among the complaints on the particulars. According to one complaint, the rally was a private event organized in part by President Trump's former campaign staff and arranged and funded by a small group, including a top Trump campaign fundraiser and donor. Another complaint alleges that the Trump campaign itself funded the rally. And the third complaint contends that a top Trump campaign fundraiser oversaw the logistics, budgeting, funding, and messaging for the rally. One of the complaints also alleges that President Trump participated in planning the rally, including by weighing in on the speaker lineup and music selection. The complaints also describe President Trump's promotion of the rally via Twitter in the immediate lead-up to the event. He reiterated his claims of election fraud on January 5th, saying, Washington is being inundated with people who don't want to see an election victory stolen by emboldened, radical-left Democrats. He also repeatedly emphasized Vice President Pence's role in the counting of electoral votes. The night before the rally, for instance, President Trump tweeted, Many states want to decertify the mistake they made in certifying incorrect and even fraudulent numbers in a process not approved by their state legislatures, which it must be. Mike Pence can send it back. C. The Save America rally began at 7 a.m. on January 6th at the Ellipse. 
For several hours, a slew of prominent supporters of President Trump gave speeches decrying election fraud and demanding corrective action. President Trump was the final speaker. He took the stage at around noon and spoke for roughly 75 minutes. Although the complaints do not contain the full text of his speech, they quote liberally from it, and the district court considered it in its entirety, analyzing it beyond the words quoted in the complaints. The parties have thus treated the full speech as incorporated into the complaints, and we will do the same. At the outset of his speech, President Trump proclaimed that all of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened, radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done, and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. He then proceeded to allege election fraud in various battleground states and to call on Republicans in Congress and Vice President Pence to do the right thing and to send the election back to the states. He alleged that there had been fraud on a scale never seen before and detailed at length allegations of fraud in several battleground states, won by then-president-elect Biden. He urged that we're going to have to fight much harder and Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. Throughout his remarks, President Trump enlisted his supporters in his self-described effort to stop the steal. Near the outset of his speech, he stated that we have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Later he said that, when you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. At one point near the end of his speech, President Trump briefly turned from alleging fraud and challenging the certification of the election to calling on Congress and the state legislatures to quickly pass sweeping election reforms. He said that we must stop the steal and then we must ensure that such outrageous election fraud never happens again. And in the latter connection, he listed numerous policy proposals achievable with your help. Many of the proposals concerned the conduct of elections, adopting powerful requirements for voter ID, requiring proof of American citizenship in order to vote in American elections, banning ballot harvesting, the use of unsecured drop boxes to commit rampant fraud, and universal unsolicited mail-in balloting and restoring the vital civic tradition of in-person voting on Election Day. At the close of his remarks, President Trump reiterated, Something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. 
He then ended his speech by saying, so we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give, the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. But we're going to try to give our Republicans the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. D. By 12.53 p.m., as President Trump was still speaking at the Ellipse, a crowd had formed at the Capitol, and members of the crowd broke through the outer security barriers. They were soon joined by people who had made their way from the Ellipse to the Capitol after President Trump finished his speech. President Trump returned to the White House where he watched television coverage of the events unfolding at the Capitol. Members of the crowd overcame Capitol Police officers, some of whom were injured while defending the Capitol from the rioters' advance. Among those injured was plaintiff Sidney Hemby, who was crushed against doors on the east side of the Capitol, struck with fists and various objects, and sprayed with chemicals. After rioters went inside the building, Capitol Police announced a full lockdown of the Capitol, and both houses of Congress stopped counting electoral votes and called recesses. At 2.24 p.m., shortly after his supporters breached the Capitol, President Trump tweeted, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. Fourteen minutes later, he added, Please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Inside the Capitol, some lawmakers, including some of the plaintiffs in these cases, became trapped inside the chambers as rioters advanced. Capitol Police officers held off the rioters at gunpoint, deployed tear gas, and told the trapped lawmakers to put on gas masks. One floor below, in the Capitol crypt, a group of Capitol Police officers, including Plaintiff James Blassingame, attempted to fend off another group of rioters. The rioters struck Officer Blassingame with fists and weapons and subjected him to racial epithets and threats. At 4.17 p.m., President Trump posted on Twitter a recorded video statement in which he directed the rioters to go home. He also repeated his claim that the election had been stolen and added, I know your pain. I know you are hurt. We love you. You're very special. And at 6.01 p.m., after Capitol Police began clearing the building, President Trump tweeted, These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory 
is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. The riot resulted in injuries to 140 police officers and claimed several lives. Two weeks later, on January 20th, then-President-elect Biden and then-Vice-President-elect Harris took office. Section B. 1. The three cases consolidated in this appeal involve complaints brought against President Trump and others in connection with the January 6th riot. The plaintiffs are Capitol Police officers and members of Congress who were at the Capitol that day. They seek recovery for physical injuries and emotional distress arising from the riot. As relief, they ask for damages and other remedies, including from President Trump. The plaintiffs sue President Trump in his personal capacity. Each of the complaints alleges that all his conduct inciting his followers, as described in the complaints, was conducted in his personal capacity as a candidate for elected office, not in any official capacity as president. For example, one complaint elaborates, President Trump tweeted from his personal Twitter account at RealDonaldTrump and not from the official White House Twitter account, and he spoke at the January 6th rally in his capacity as a losing candidate for the presidency. Each of the complaints asserts a claim against President Trump under 42 U.S.C. Section 1985, which prohibits conspiring to prevent anyone from holding a federal office or from performing the duties of a federal office. The Section 1985 claims are generally based on the contention that President Trump engaged with others in a plan to prevent Congress from discharging its duty to count electoral votes and to prevent then-President-elect Biden and then-Vice-President-elect Harris from assuming office. Two of the complaints include various claims against President Trump under District of Columbia law. And one of the complaints contains a claim against President Trump under 42 U.S.C., Section 1986, for failing to stop the riot after it started. 2. President Trump moved to dismiss the claims against him on various grounds. Of principal relevance, he argued that he is entitled to official act immunity under Nixon v. Fitzgerald, 1982, as to all the claims against him. The district court largely rejected President Trump's claim of immunity. It reasoned that President Trump's alleged acts, his tweets alleging fraud in the election, his efforts to persuade state and local officials to change election outcomes, his lawsuits challenging the election results, his participation in the planning of the January 6th rally, and his speech at that rally, 
were aimed at remaining in office for a second term, which, to the court, was not an official function of the presidency. The court, however, granted President Trump immunity as to the claim under 42 U.S.C. Section 1986 for failing to stop the riot. That claim, the court held, sought to hold President Trump liable for failing to exercise his official presidential powers and so fell within his official act immunity. Beyond asserting official act immunity, President Trump also sought dismissal of the claims against him on the ground that they seek to hold him liable for speech protected by the First Amendment. The district court rejected that argument. The court held that President Trump's speech at the January 6th rally lay beyond the protection of the First Amendment because it amounted to incitement of imminent lawless action. President Trump did not attempt to appeal the district court's denial of his First Amendment defense at this stage, so his potential entitlement to a dismissal on First Amendment grounds is not before us in this appeal. The district court dismissed several of the claims brought under District of Columbia law as inadequately pleaded on the merits. But it held that the plaintiffs had plausibly alleged that President Trump had violated Section 1985 and so allowed the Section 1985 claims against President Trump to proceed and the court reached the same conclusion as to some of the claims under District of Columbia law. Those claims against President Trump thus remain live and await resolution. We've come to the end of Part 1 of the Opinion. But don't worry, next episode will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.